why is C.S. Lewis, after all this time, still so incredibly relevant to so many religious and non-religious people? We discuss this and more with special guest, Dr. Michael Ward, on this episode of The Overthinkers. thinking people's thinking people. Welcome to The Overthinkers, home for the creative intellectual. I am your host, Joseph Holmes, filmmaker, film critic, son of Adam. And with me as always is my tediously talented co-host. Nathan Clarkson, actor, author, filmmaker, and I was gonna say daughter of Eve, but <laughs> <laughs> also son of Adam. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Oh, well, there, there we go. And with us today is a very special guest who we've wanted to have on our show for a very long time. He is a senior research fellow at Blackfriars Hall, University of Oxford, and professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. He is the author of the award-winning Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens of the Imagination of C.S. Lewis, and co-editor of the Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis. He is acknowledged as one of the leading C.S. Lewis scholars in the world and even has a role in the new C.S. Lewis biographical drama film, The Most Reluctant Convert. His latest book, After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, is available now. He is the majestic, the magisterial, the magnanimous <laughs> Dr. Michael Ward. Dr. Ward, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Joseph. <laughs> Thank You're you, welcome. <laughs> we specialize in uh, great openings and titles for our guests. How yes. can I possibly live up to that? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's all downhill from here. The whole show is just all downhill. No one actually here. listens beyond this part. <laughs> yes. um, so anyway, well, we're very glad to have you on the show. And if everybody enjoys this conversation, wants to continue the conversation with us, uh, Nathan Clarkson, where can they go? They can join us on the Overthinkers group on Facebook. We have almost a thousand people now on the private group so cool. um, who are talking about all the fun things we talk about. They're sharing books and articles and thoughts and hilarious memes. So if you are an overthinker and like all the things we do on this show and would like to find other overthinkers, please, please head over to our private group on Facebook called The Overthinkers. You can also go to theoverthinkersjournal.com where you can find out more about your hosts, what we do, live events, and read some interesting reviews and insights we have on blogs. And aside from that, I think uh, that's the announcements. Fantastic. All right. So, Dr. Ward, are you ready to talk about C.S. Lewis? I am. <laughs> Fantastic. So, C.S. Lewis is one of the most famous Christian intellectuals and most famous fantasy writers in the past century. According to the Atlantic piece, Why C.S. Lewis Never Goes Out of Style, C.S. Lewis Narnia books have sold over a million copies worldwide, 100 million copies worldwide, and been translated to over 30 languages. His most famous work of intellectual apologetics, Mere Christianity, was voted by Christian writers polled by Christianity Today as the number one most influential religious work of the 20th century. His work continues to be adapted around the world in the stage of Scream, like adaptations of Screwtape Letters, Great Divorce, and Disney's Narnia adaptations in the upcoming Netflix Narnia series. Creatures like Tim Keller, Doug quote him for sermons, atheist writers make fantasy series like His Dark Materials specifically to refute him, and irreverent shows like Rick and Morty make a point to parody him as they just did in the season five premiere. Dr. Michael Ward, what is it about C.S. Lewis that resonates with people even to this day, such that religious and non-religious people, but especially religious people, find themselves captivated, compelled, and inspired by his work? <laughs> Pretty open in the question, yeah. let's do it. <laughs> He's just a very brilliant writer, thinker, man. Mm. Um, he works in many different 
the genres, you know, children's fantasy, intellectual history, you know, he was an academic here at Oxford, Christian apologetics, poetry, um, science fiction, yeah. spiritual yeah. memoir, emotional journal of grief, mm. um, it, you name it, he's, he's written it. And uh, in, in nearly every case, he's written it really, really well. Mm. Then he had an interesting life. Um, he was friends with Tolkien, best friends with Tolkien. Yeah. Uh, had a most remarkable late marriage, which became the subject of a movie in its own right. So That's everywhere right. you look, Lewis is just fascinating and provocative, challenging, mm. fun. Mm. You know, there's just so much to get your teeth into. Oh. That's a really that's a really interesting point that you bring out the sort of the variety and versatility of his life and work that you know he's he's done it sort of all in, and so there's always there's not a part of sort of I guess imagination or um, or, or intellectual pursuits that he hasn't really uh, hasn't really not touched what what because you've been really into C.S. Lewis for a long time what is it that about him that particularly grabbed you and got you interested. Well, initially, just, you know, the first thing that I ever read by Lewis was the Narnia books, of course, like mm, for most people. In yeah. fact, they were read to me by my parents before I was old enough to read them for myself. Um, and I liked them as stories, but I also liked them because I was told they had this inner Christian level of meaning. Yeah. Um, but it was well done. I, yeah. I was familiar enough with, with Christian stories to know that they could be badly done. <laughs> But Narnia worked as, as literature. I mean, I've, I've always been a keen reader and I, I knew when a story worked and when it didn't. And Narnia always struck me as successful. So I, I, I moved from Narnia into Lewis's other fiction, um, you know, his Ransom trilogy of the science mm. fiction books I mentioned oh, yeah. and The Great Divorce and The Screwtape Letters. And then I got into his Christian apologetics like Mere Christianity, Problem of Pain, Miracles, The Four Loves. Then I came here to Oxford to do a, an English degree. So I began studying Lewis's academic writings because mm. he was a medieval literary critic and literary historian. And I did a short thesis on him for my first degree. And um, as a result of that, was asked to do a one-off lecture. And as a result of the one-off lecture, was asked to do a short course of tuition. And it just sort of snowballed into a, a career teaching and writing about C.S. Lewis. And then I came, when I came to do my own PhD, Lewis was the obvious choice because I was already fairly expert in his writings. And um, when I was halfway through my PhD, I made this discovery about the Narnia books, about why there are seven chronicles and what it is that really holds them together. And that's sort of, you know, been, how, how do you call it? Year zero. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. The origin story. The origin story. I use the origin story a lot recently. Yeah. So, <laughs> I kind of date my life before and after Planet Nine. <laughs> Makes sense. It's interesting hearing you, because you brought something up and you're in, in talking about why Lewis is such an important figure, even to this day, and why he holds such weight. And one of the things I hadn't thought of before is that Lewis, what he did that many other um, of his ilk didn't, was he was someone who was present in the spaces of many different genres. And you talked about this um, in your earlier yeah. comment, and he did it well. Because we have a lot of theologians who do theology 
well, and, um, but they do only a particular kind of theology. And we have a lot of fantasy writers who write really well, or even just fiction or uh, fiction writers on a whole, and they do it really well. We have poets, we have, you know, go on down the line of what Lewis has, has done. And it's interesting to see a man who was, uh, no pun intended, a jack of all trades. <laughs> <laughs> Inside baseball, there, folks. If Google don't know, C.S. Lewis was commonly referred to as Jack. They call me Jack, uh, or very almost exclusively referred to as Jack <laughs> and family. Yes. But what I what's interesting to me about him is, and you pointed out, he did all these things well. Yeah. And I think, but there's a common theme in all of his work: be it his theology, be it his poetry, be it his um, his fiction. Is the thing that has drew me to Lewis and continues to draw me back to Lewis every year. I read um, a Lewis book every year is, uh, well, a few things. You mentioned humor and I think humor is indicative of humility very often. Mm -hmm. And so I think that Lewis approaches everything he does with both the confidence. He he boldly charges ahead in his thoughts and his his, uh, conclusions, but there's a humor there that invites you um, in a very, I hesitate to say humble, but I think it is a humble way. And so it feels that he is grasping and tackling all these big things and all of his different work and genre, um, but he's doing it in a way that invites you to do it with him. And he invites you with good nature and humility. And I think that's something that I, I find is sorely lacking in theologians of yesterday and today. It's uh, humility and it's also a yeah. fun. It's very often it's done and, and um, you know, I try to read, um, as many of our listeners know, I have ADHD and dyslexia and a host of learning problems. And I really do attempt to to read, to, to push myself to read these things, but very often reading theology, um, I don't feel there's a welcoming hand or humility when I'm doing it. Sure. It's, yeah. uh, until it can be really difficult uh, for me. And, and I think even if I didn't have dyslexia, it would be difficult. <laughs> it's difficult for most of us, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But I think there's something really unique in Lewis's um, approach in his writing. Um, and I've said it multiple times on this, the humility and the humor, I think is uh, unfortunately very rare in many people. Yeah. And like, I, and like um, Dr. Ward said, the, just the sheer variety of what he did with the with that kind of sentiment attached to it, I think has proven to be really um, inviting to people for many decades and um, as well as uh, really meaningful. So that's one thing as I look that really draws, continues to draw me back to him yep. in his work. Yep. Now, that makes a lot of sense. I, I have, I'll kind of share my, my thoughts on C.S. Lewis and get your, your thoughts on, on that, uh, Dr. Ward. I as I'm hearing this, I mean, again, I'm hearing a lot about the variety. He's able to do a lot of different kinds of things. And one of the things I'm thinking is CS Source really does an amazing job of capturing sort of the head and the heart components of being a human mm-hmm. and being a, and particularly being a Christian in ways that most often did. Uh, I think, you know, I, again, most, like most of us, I first got exposed to, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis as, as like a four-year-old, you know, with with Narnia and my parents. And he had a way of taking, and this is something I don't really see basically anybody else doing, but taking the Christian worldview and Christian imagination, how Christian imagination, and then and from that, not saying, okay, this is how we imagine the world. This is now what we should do ethically, or here's how we should live, but saying, here's how Christians imagine the world. Now let's have fun with it. Let's play. Let's use it for play. Let's use it for, okay, this is the cosmology of the world. This is, you know, there's a creator and we're in this battle of good versus evil. Well, now let's make that into a fantasy. Let's say, well, what if 
he had other planets that he did that with, how would God appear there? And it, and it meant that my Christianity was able to express itself in play where, you know, uh, most of the other places in the world where play was a part of it, you know, it's like, you know, the Marvel superheroes use a scientific cosmology for play and say, okay, well, how do we create superpowers? Well, we're going to use, you know, a random accent for radioactive spider, which is talking about the randomness of the universe being used as a, as an expression for play. Mm -hmm. um, but, or Iron Man, it's like, you know, human innovation being used as an expression for play. But C.S. Lewis did, you know, use Christianity as an expression for play, which I really hadn't seen before. And, and so that sort of inspired more of my how do I integrate, you know, my a desire for play and my desire to tell stories with my with my Christianity? And then similarly with apologetics, he's done something which I hadn't, you know, but he's able to say, okay, I'm going to feel the world and play with the world, but also think about it. And so mm -hmm. I'm going to think about even my own apologetics and say, how does that work? And, and then say that, you know, the fantasy that I feel, the way I want to express and have joy in the world and the way I want to think about it and, dare I say, overthink about the world, these don't contradict <laughs> each other. You know, these, most of the time you find intellectuals who are not good at playing with the world and people who play with the world who are not good at intellectualizing it. And so uh -huh. CSL showed that you could do both. You could do both. And I think that that for me is, is why I continue to kind of go back to the well of C.S. Lewis because that's another thing he does with his apologetics is that he's able to use analogies that speak to the heart, which, you know, yeah. a lot of times, so when I want to explain something to people, it's like, well, how could Christianity be true? Or how could this aspect of Christianity be true? I'm able to, like, when I want to pull it, I, I always go back to C.S. Lewis because he's one that's able to give an analogy that will resonate with people that I talk to more than really anybody else. Way. Yeah. yeah. So that's sort of where I get. Does any of that sort of resonate with you, your experience, Dr. Mark Ward? Yes, absolutely. Especially where you say he unites the head and the heart. Mm. And mm. Nathan's point about the comedic aspect, the fun, your point about play. Um, Lewis says somewhere that the fact that human beings have bodies is the mm. oldest joke there is. <laughs> um, because we are this unusual thing. We are, we are a rational animal. Hmm. From you know, we are reasonable. Hopefully, we. we <laughs> you notice I, I, gl I glanced at Nathan. <laughs> 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 uh, <hopefully. laughs> but no, we're yeah. we're rational in the and and in that respect, we are like the angels because angels are you know pure rational spirits without right. bodies. But we are also like the animals because we have flesh and we have desires and bodily fluids and muscles and yeah. nerves and senses. Um, but we are neither animals nor beasts. Mm. We are human beings. Mm. We are the human animal. We are the rational animal. That, that's the classic definition of a human being. And uh, in, in this book, After Humanity, <laughs> available, <laughs> available now, yes. <laughs> uh, well, I'm talking about Lewis's great work, The Abolition of Man. Incredibly uh, underrated. Love that book. Yeah. Lewis talks about the human person in three compartments, the mm. head, the chest and the belly. Hmm. And he makes precisely this point that from the head upwards, we are angelic or possibly demonic. Um, <laughs> yeah. from, from the belly down, we're like the animals. Hmm. The chest is the liaison officer between cerebral man and visceral man. Hmm. And it's the chest that makes us human. So in the, the Abolition of Man, the opening chapter is men without chests. Yes. People who have no stable, stable heart, no capacity to integrate their thoughts and their feelings. 
And so your points about his, his ability to integrate, to combine the two aspects is, I don't know if you even intended it, but it speaks exactly to his point in The Abolition of Man. I'm going to pretend that I was intentional. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's really fascinating. Uh, do you have anything to go off of, of that? Uh, yeah, I, I think as I look into um, just essentially the world today, and, and I try to uh, sum up its ills, I yeah. think that I see very often the problem today is that I think people... Uh, all of us uh, tend to live either only in our heads or only in our hearts. And I think that, like both of you have been pointing out, the C.S. Lewis had this amazing way of, um, of, of uniting both. And I love the way you described that in the chest. I just actually read The Abolition of Man. And so I've been very lucky to be here in Oxford so I can uh, actually be around Dr. Ward and say, what does it mean? <laughs> it's one of his most difficult works, but I do love this image of the chest being the place that unites yeah makes it fully us. And, and I'm going to say something else that I, I think that I really um, like about Lewis. And I think, you know, we have a lot of artists and writers yeah. listening to the podcast. And I think there's something that, I, and I want to um, ask Dr. Ward what he thinks maybe um, as filmmakers and authors and fiction writers, what yeah. we can learn from Lewis and, and do we take in our own work. But one right. thing I would say that I really, really appreciate about, uh, about um, Jack is that he put himself into mm. his work in a really beautiful and honest way. Even his theology, he talks about his own desires. He talks about his own doubts, his own um, um, failings, whatever yeah. it might be. Joseph, you and I have had this conversation on the podcast yeah. even a few times, that for an, a piece of art to be truly effective and long-lasting, the artist has to be present in it in yeah. some way or form. And we see this image by God and that we are created in his image, that God's image exists in his creation. Yeah. Uh, so we do this in actually imaging of our own creator. We must be present in our own creation for it to be actual, um, actually uh, effective and useful. Yeah. And if you look at Lewis how he wrote, um, even in his fiction, he was there. And oh, yeah. he was there in an honest way, a way that I, th I think many writers, you know, I was, um, we were talking the other night, uh, Dr. Ward, about, about Camus, who is a... Um, yeah, a, existentialist. A, yeah. Oh. But they were around the same... Oh, yeah, contemporary, were, yes, a contemporary. Well, around the same time. Yeah, contemporary, thank you, the word escaped me. But uh, what strikes me, when Lewis versus Camus, and I've read very little of Camus, is how... Um, how much Lewis is honest, Lewis's honesty about himself, I should mm. say, in his, he reveals himself, his humanity, who he is, and Camus, uh, I don't get that as much, and uh, obviously they're both very, yeah. but the thing I've always loved about Lewis is I felt um, that he was there, so I felt that my own, my own doubts, my own struggles, my own, I wasn't someone who was putting off into idealism, something else. I was, I was reading someone who's actually in their work, and I think that's one of the things that, as an artist, I would like to incorporate in in Lewis's um, by Lewis's inspiration. Mm -hmm. Is I want to make sure that whenever I create, that I'm in it, that there's an honesty there about my own humanity, my own struggle or triumph or whatever it might be. And I think that is one of the a huge component of why Lewis is so long lasting and effective, and why his art means so much. And I want to make sure that we as artists might do that in uh, Lewis's inspiration. Well, that's, that's a good, well, go. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. That's, that's a good, that's a good sort of, a building on that question is that, you know, what can we learn from C.S. Lewis? It's kind of that question of why is it that, you know, so many, so many people have trouble doing that integration of head and heart that Lewis mm. is in, particularly Christians who should have not only 
just you know the the integration of theology, the theology to integrate the head and the heart that C.S. talks about, but also the example of C.S. Lewis to yeah. to do it. Why is it? Because one of the reasons he's still relevant in many ways is that uh, nobody really has done it as well as he's done since then even christians i mean you know again we've all seen christian movies and we've talked about christian Mm -hmm. movies on this podcast and so i guess why is it that it seems like people have trouble doing what he's done and what advice i guess would you give as as to other artists who want to be able to and writers who want to to emulate what he did yeah you're hitting so many sweet spots in in your analysis of lyrics it's remarkable (laughs) um the, the page i opened here was just um uh, to pick up Nathan's first point about mm. how how Lewis's works feel honest because he's grappling with issues which are pertinent for himself. Mm. Yeah. Uh, in, and in in this new guide I've written to the abolition of man, I point out how the abolition of man feels. Although it's a very high level piece of philosophizing, yeah. it also has a kind of personal engagement to it. Right. Yeah. Um, and the and I say that it, although it's it's a work of prose, it could in a way be considered a work of poetry yes. because um, the the great Irish poet W. B. Yeats said, "We make out of the quarrel with others rhetoric, but of the quarrel with ourselves poetry." Hmm. And I think that's wow relevant to a lot of Lewis that he's he's always quarrelling or nearly always quarrelling first and foremost, with himself. Mm. Wow. Or he's admitting us to his quarrel with, right. with some subject that he's wrestled with and grappled with and come out the other side of. Um, he's not just creaming off the top of his brain and giving us you know, some abstract mm. theory, interesting though that might be. Um, it's much more existential than that. He, mm. he's, he's wanting to share with us things which he has tested on his own pulses. Hmm. And another keen example, clear example of that in the abolition of man is that in the course of the abolition of man, he argues that uh, the real test of of value, of the objectivity of value, is um, our willingness to suffer for doing the right thing. Hmm. As long as something doesn't really cost us anything, right? It, it might just be a subjectively convenient thing for us to do or say. But as soon as we have to suffer for it. Well, then we realize that it must be objective because unless it were objective, unless it had some, you know, reality in the world that was not dependent upon us, we would just change it, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we? To suit our own convenience. But the fact that we suffer and sometimes even die for what we believe to be right indicates that we do truly believe that this standard, whatever it may be, is objective. And all that has to do, I think, and this is a point I make in my guide, that um, it has to do with Lewis's own uh experience as a young man it's often said if you want to understand a great figure from the past a a useful question to ask yourself is what was going on in the world when he was 20. Mm. when c.s lewis was 20 the first world war was coming to a conclusion indeed the the armistice was signed in the very month of lewis's 20th birthday wow and he had fought in the first world war he'd been an officer in the british army right he had been very nearly killed a shell had exploded in his trench it, it had annihilated the man next to him. It had mm. spattered Lewis full of shrapnel, bits of which he carried around in his body for the rest of his life. And he had a kind of out-of-body experience. The thought occurred to him, uh, here is a picture of a man dying. You know, he sort of looked down yeah. at and saw himself dying, he thought. But yeah. of course he survived. And, but he came this close to, to death. And many of his close friends were killed. And 
you know, he, he saw sitting and standing corpses on the battlefield. Wow. He writes about this Jeez. in his autobiography. So when in this piece of philosophy, The Abolition of Man, he talks about how death for a good cause is the crucial test of the objectivity of value. Yeah. He's drawing upon all this experience. Yeah. It's not just something he's read in a book. He yeah. knows what he's talking about. So when he cites the old, the old Latin tag about how it's sweet and seemly to die for your country, he knows whereof he speaks. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another reason why the abolition of man has this kind of heft, this bite. Yeah. It springs from a deep part of Lewis. And one of the things I'm most proud of in the abolition, in this guide after humanity is I've, I've found pictures of Lewis in uniform. Uh, this wow. is the only photograph of Lewis as a, as a officer, a cadet wow. in the British army. Um, amazing. Along with a man, one of these figures here is, is his friend Paddy Moore. And Paddy Moore was unfortunately killed in the Great War. Mm. And as a result, C.S. Lewis's whole life changed because Lewis had promised this guy that if Paddy Moore were to be killed, that C.S. Lewis would look after his mother and sister. That's right. And after Paddy's death, Lewis's whole life was redirected. So living with Mrs. Moore, Paddy's mother, and his sister, Maureen, and he lived with them for decades, changed the whole course of his life. So again, this, this all goes back to when Lewis was 20 years old. This is forming him in a very crucial sense at, at that very malleable stage of life. And, and this all speaks to your point about um, his speaking from, from his own struggles. But, and this is where I wanna sort of add a further point. The, the great thing about Lewis is that, he, that, he, that this doesn't result in a kind of narcissism. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't all collapse in on himself. Although he's wrestling with himself, he's always yeah. wrestling with himself in tension with the outside world and trying to arrive at greater insight into reality. It's not just me, 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 me. Look at the pageant of my bleeding heart. <laughs> um, he's saying, yeah, I, I matter. I'm, I'm a person of worth like everybody. And this is what I find to be valuable. But it's not because it's me specifically that it's valuable. It's because only through my own personal prism can I get a, a view of the universe at all. Mm. And everybody has an equally valuable prism. And that's why we are made as individuals, so that we can each share our own perspective on reality, so that the, the total picture of reality is richer. That's beautiful. Um, so he has this marvellous passage in The Four Loves, where he's talking about how... Um, how each of us needs the others to, to, bring, to bring out the full man. He's talking about the inklings, actually. Yes, um, yes. Oh. When, when, when Charles is dead, when Charles Williams, one of the inklings, yeah. when Charles Williams died, I not only lost Charles, I lost that bit of Charles that only Charles could bring out of Tolkien. Mm, yeah. So I, I lose a bit of Tolkien when Charles dies. Wow. Because we're all... In, involved with one another, we're interinanimating, we're interpenetrating. Yeah. Um, so there's this sort of almost mystical conception of, of, the, of the human race uh, as all uniquely but simultaneously corporately valuable. Yeah. And Lewis neither dissolves into, you know, communism nor retreats into individualism. Yeah. He's always doing both at the same time. That's, I mean, it's so funny because like that's a, that's an example I bring out and talk about to people all the time that, you know, you lose if you somebody 
is gone, you lose a little bit of that person. And it's just so funny, like his examples, every time he brings up an analogy or an example, I'm just like, yes, I've experienced that too. How did he know? Like, I just, yeah, yeah. And he sees yeah. somebody able to describe that in ways that other people are not. Yeah, and it's because he has this very high anthropology, you know, to mm. put it technically. Because, um, you know, Lewis is not just a Christian. Sure. <laughs> he's, he's a Christian humanist. Ah, interesting. Effectively, that is to say, he has, you know, obviously his Christian convictions, his Christian commitment was of prime importance. But that didn't somehow negate yeah. his, his fellowship with all other human beings. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's the problem with some Christian writers. They, they, they're unsure of their own humanity. Mm, they they, wow. they yeah. trust their Christian convictions, but they're not really sure they belong to the human race. <laughs> it's oh, like interesting. Gnostic retreat into the spiritual is the valuable thing. And regular human experience is somehow less valuable. Um, and it, I mean, you might want to rank them, but that, just because something is less important doesn't mean it's unimportant. And Lewis was fond of this old phrase about the highest does not stand without the lowest. Wow. He loves that phrase. It comes repeatedly in his writings. The highest doesn't stand without the yeah. lowest. So our Christian convictions don't somehow obliterate our membership of the human race. Mm. So we should want to, you know, be interested in the body and in sport and in humor and in art and all these good things. Because you know, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Mm. Well, that's, that's a really interesting because you've talked about this a lot, Nathan Clarkson, about like how what you love about when Christianity spreads around the world as it's when it's done rightly is that it doesn't eliminate the human expressions and the human cultures that have developed around there. It's that it redeems them. It finds the ways that it's that they're that they're not contributing to human flourishing and yes. and finds a way to to uh, to help them more contribute to human flourishing without actually destroying those those elements. So that's an aspect of C.S. Lewis that he didn't want his ideology because he's had a time when he was not a Christian, when he loved other things mm. and he didn't want any, what he, part of the reason he became a Christian is he saw that actually the, he, Christianity was a part of a lot of the things he loved and not seen it before. So that's an mm -hmm. interesting component of his ability to do that. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It's, um, hmm. I'm digesting everything you guys are saying, but what, it kind of keeps on going back to the thing, one of the reasons that Lewis really has had such an effect on people um, is because I, I love what you're saying. He's not scared to be a man, to be a human. Yeah. Yeah. And to search for God in all of the places that very often I think many people are scared of looking for or, don't, or haven't found him yet. And I love, um, I love the, the, the story, I think one of the most compelling things about him is he was an atheist. Obviously, you know, I was on the plane recently, uh, flying over to Oxford, and I and I was I I said something about C.S. Lewis and this um this guy who was a, a musician, opera, he was a conductor, a classical music conductor, and he goes, oh C.S. Lewis, oh his I liked Narnia, but he was just is it, too religiosity. Too much religiosity. <laughs> yeah. I said, well, have you read any? No. Um, <laughs> and so I think that's funny because I'm I was always I've always been surprised at how um and I keep on coming back to the same few things how honest he was in his writing but but by yeah. that I mean and, and Dr. Ward put it better is he how do I say he wasn't scared to put himself in the in his writing in a way that the things he was writing about were specifically oriented towards what he was interested in life right he wasn't trying to impress you he wasn't trying to sound smart or to come up with some ran, random philosophical idea to um to explore just for fun everything he talked about was 
based and rooted and anchored in the reality that he was in yeah. and um the things that he would go through were his own experiences his own experiences with doubt or temptation or or whatever it might be and i think that's again uh one of the reasons he's so powerful and again i'm, I'm kind of summing up everything we've talked about yeah the igniting the head and the heart um and but yeah i you could go on and on about why he is um always continually uh, so effective and still is to so many people. But I want to ask, uh, before we wrap up and get yeah. to our blessed verses, I want to ask um, Dr. Ward two things. I'm asking, we have, again, we have a lot of writers and artists. What would you say to them out of C.S. Lewis's work? What can they ease, um, easily, what can they take and put in their own work? Uh, just a couple things from Lewis that are either practices or ideas or concepts that you see in the work of Lewis that as we uh, Christian writers, artists, uh, whatever it might be, storytellers, what can we emulate from from Lewis's uh, mm-hmm. work and ethic and practice? And then I'm going to ask because you are the 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 premier Lewis scholar. Yes, I'm going to ask for. Do you have any fun anecdote that many Lewis fans out there might not know about him? Uh, funny catchphrase, interesting story or fun fact. So those are your two questions. Okay. So yeah, first question, what can artists and writers and would-be Christian influencers uh, draw from his writings? I would strongly encourage everybody uh, to read his his book, An Experiment in Criticism. Ah, mm-hmm. That's yeah. not terribly well known. It's, mm. it's quite a late work. He published it just a year or two before he died. An Experiment in Criticism. It's a very ripe work. It's yeah. full of mature wisdom about, well, effectively, why we read. Mm. And you can easily apply that to why do we watch films? Why do right. we watch yeah. plays? Why, yeah. why do we engage with any kind of art? And, and there are two sets of distinctions that I think are just really helpful as kind of categories of thought for writers and artists one of these distinctions is the distinction between uh, receiving and using a work of art. Sure. Yep. Um, and that probably is pretty self-explanatory, that when you use a work of art, you're, you're making it serve some pre-existing purpose that you mm-hmm. have. You know, is it going to you know, win you brownie points in, in the culture wars? Right, Is yeah. it, it going to you know, uh, serve a particular religious or political purpose right um, that, that you can turn it to um it doesn't uh, or if you receive the work you are you're letting it conjure its own magic over you you're, you're not yeah. wanting to put it to any particular mm. purpose you're just yeah. letting it be itself um it's a kind of it's been described as a hermeneutic of love yeah that you're not trying to objectify the work and and control it. You're just be yourself. We can be in dialogue. I'll, I'll take from you whatever good things you have to give me. Um, yeah. Love hopes all things, endures all things, bears all things, believes all things, and that's the sort of good attitude that one should have to to a work of art. It doesn't mean it always be repaid, mm. and that's one of the ways in which you can then come to some sort of conclusion about the value of that work of art. It, it, it may not have much from which you can receive, but at least you've been open to receiving from it. 
So that's one pair of distinctions. And the other pair is um, the distinction between uh, logos and poema. Um, so Ooh. logos is when you is what a work of art is saying, its message. Yeah. Poema is how it is made. So, so I, all, all novels, all plays, all films are both something said and something made. And particularly Christians, if they're not careful, they overemphasize the logos. Yes. They, they want the thing to say something just mm. so, just you know, without any ambiguity, no equivocation, um, because it's really important what I have to say. But as a result, the, the poema, the artifact, the, uh, the artistic construct evaporates or crumbles, mm. crumbles under the pressure mm. of all this yeah. messaging that has to be communicated. Um, so that, again, is a distinction that Lewis wants to keep in, in taut tension. Yes, Never let great. the poema or the logos overbalance against the other. So that's all in an experiment in criticism. Everybody should read an experiment in criticism. Yeah. I myself did not read it until after I'd done my English degree. And it's one of the most foolish things I ever did. <laughs> it was so helpful um, if I'd yeah. got all these categories of, of thought in my mind. So that was your first question. And your second yes. question was... By the way, anecdotes. That's, oh, wait. Okay, wait. that's absolutely amazing. You're talking about the... Uh, you said logos and... Poema. Poema. Yeah. Poema. Yeah. That, this is a more intelligent way to say what we have been railing about on this <laughs> yes. for quite a while. You articulated it so beautifully. We are going to be um, saying uh, Logos and Poema. Yeah, we're we'll dropping this yes. everywhere from now on. God, it's like you just use words you hear randomly to try and sound smarter. Huh. Well, now you're just acting transcendent. <laughs> um, but absolutely amazing. And the second question is, uh, before we had, uh, before we had off to the um, blesses and curses and wrap the episode up. Do you have, as the scholar, a fun anecdote story or fun fact about C.S. Lewis that our, that our listeners can take into their <laughs> only these groups and drop? Yeah, well, um, there are loads of funny anecdotes about C.S. Lewis. He, he was a very witty man in real life as well as in his books. Um, my, my favorite joke is, is probably not very politically correct anymore because <laughs> yeah. those are the best. Because <laughs> it, but anyway, I'll tell it. Um, C.S. Lewis liked to go on walking tour holidays. That was his favourite way of having a holiday. And he and a group of friends would would walk away from Oxford and they'd walk for a day and they would put up an inn overnight and walk again the next day. Put up for a night, walk and walk and walk until they'd had enough, and then they'd take the train home. And at the end of one of these walking tour holidays, um, Lewis was looking not unlike a tramp, because, um, <laughs> you know, he was a bit unshaven, he was covered in mud and sweat, and all his clothes were tatty and, you know, covered in briars and nettles. And um, So he gets on the train looking like a complete vagrant. Um, and the, the lady in the carriage opposite him, a very prim, proper, well-dressed lady, leans over and says, excuse me, do you have a first class ticket? Yes, madam, but I need it for myself. <laughs> <laughs> which, oh, man. Which is brilliant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's so just, much just there. Like that. <laughs> I wish I could, I could have stuff like that off the top of my head. Yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. I, I feel like the stories about Lewis, because he is a theologian and all this may hold yeah. in the highest seat that we often forget when I hear all these anecdotes, especially here in Oxford, he was funny. And I just absolutely yeah. love that. So thank you for that. That was a wonderful anecdote. And 
All right. Very much like the Lewis I've come to know. Do we have time for one other? Of course. Oh, one okay, quick fine, because, fine. Because, <laughs> yes, because we if must talk this book. Oh, uh, yes, yes. yes uh, then after humanity. This book. Um, I, I have a couple of jokes. Um, and this is one relating to um, a man called I.A. Richards, Ivor Richards, who, who mm. was a sort of intellectual opponent of C.S. Lewis. Ooh, nice. And they met in Oxford, and Lewis somehow managed to get him to come to Oxford for some event, and as a result had to put him up overnight mm. in his college. But he'd forgotten to book a room. Uh, then he realised, oh, one of my colleagues is away for the night, you can have his room. But there's no books. What are you going to read before you do turn in for the night? So Lewis said to I.A. Richards, you know, this opponent of his that he'd been, he'd been bombarding intellectually for decades, for years and years. He said, wait there, I'll come straight back. And he goes to his own room, C.S. Lewis, and he comes with, he returns with a book by I.A. Richards. <laughs> and he says to him, read this. This will put you to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but it gets even better because Richards opened it up after Lewis had left. And, and his own book was full of Lewis's marginal quotations. Oh, my oh God. Oh, no. Such stinging, biting disagreements <laughs> that he couldn't sleep at all. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, a, a one-two punch. Oh, um, my goodness. Intellectual sparring. Yeah, it's just brilliant. Oh, that's amazing. And so, so here, here is the guy. Uh, I.A. Richards. Um, oh, that's that, That's the chap who, who if, fell foul of Lewis's wit. And if you're no, only was... listening to us on the podcast, you may not be able to see this, but this is, but uh, yes. Check I, it out on YouTube. Check, check it out, out on YouTube. All, all of our you overthinkers are on YouTube. And also you should buy uh, my, Dr. Michael Ward's book and then you can see all the photographs that he has in there. Yes, is it really is really cool. cool. It's filled with a lot of photographs. I'm, as you, we've heard, a very visual learner very often <laughs> yes. uh, with dyslexia. So this is really fun. It has a lot of the uh, pictures, history. That I, I absolutely love that. So please, it is really yes. cool. And we will tell you after the blessings and curses where you can um, look up more about Michael, uh, Dr. Michael Ward and his book and where you can get it. But right, right now, right. The, best, to, the best part of the show. <laughs> the blessings and curses. So, yes. and of course, if you're just tuning in because you're a big fan of Dr. Ward, this is the part of the show where we find one thing on topic that's a piece of art or media or something that we uh, want to bless to recommend to you or curse that we want to say, stay the heck away from. So, uh, <laughs> Dr. Ward, would you like to go first? Or would you like uh, Nathan uh, and I to go first? Uh, no, I'll go first if you like. Fantastic. Um, go for it. I want to bless this new movie about C.S. Lewis that I think mm. Nathan mentioned. Ah, fantastic. Mentioned yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So there's this new movie called The Most Reluctant Convert. Mm -hmm all about C.S. Lewis's conversion, first of all, to theism and then to Christianity. And it's adapted from a one-man stage play starring Max McLean, which has yeah. done good business at Broadway. Um, and it's now been made into this movie by uh, Norman Stone, who, who made the original BBC Shadowlands. Um, not, not the Anthony Hopkins Shadowlands, but oh, an earlier one made for TV. And he won a BAFTA for that. It, it was great. It was a very successful movie. And he's had a long-standing interest in C.S. Lewis. In fact, this, this director, Norman Stone, made a, a BBC documentary about my own work, Planet Narnia. Oh, wow. And, and as a result of that, when he came to make this new movie, The Most Reluctant Convert, he saw that there was a small role in it for, to, for playing the part of C.S. Lewis's vicar. Um, so, <laughs> so he he asked me if I would do a little bit of... Of thespian activity. <laughs> um, 
And I said yes, because it was a very small role. I couldn't I couldn't ruin the film. There too, are too no small roles, <laughs> only small actors. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a showing of it, a private showing here in Oxford earlier this week. And Nathan and I went to see it at, I, at Magdalen College, where Lewis worked. I wow. did. And actually, it was kind of amazing to see this movie in the context I did, because before the movie, Dr. Ward, we walked into Magdalen College, where C.S. Lewis taught and worked and lived. And I got the tour of the grounds of the steps that Dang. Lewis was and saw um, the path that he and Tolkien walked um, where Lewis, I don't know if it was the exact moment, but really kind of began to say, I, I think I believe in God. And so then I, I experienced this and then walk into the theater and watch this. It really is, and I don't say this lightly, and I am a filmmaker, a beautiful depiction of the life of Lewis and really the life of him coming to his faith and his faith. Oh, that's awesome. Absolutely amazing. And Obviously, the best part is Dr. Wolf's performance. Oh, clearly. Obviously. I believe it'll be out in the fall um, in America. So That's, please keep your eyes out for that. Yeah. Be, it's really worth seeing. Yeah, oh, it's coming kind of supposedly early November in America. Perfect. Oh, um, wow. Well, That's in exciting. Addition to, in addition to Max McLean, who plays the old C.S. Lewis, there's this new young kid on the block, a British actor called Nicholas Ralph, and he plays the young C.S. Lewis. Oh, and nice. he's just rocketed to stardom um, by playing the lead role in a new drama called All Creatures Great and Small. So my cue. Oh, wow. Which is doing great business on PBS. Um, and they managed to get Nicholas Ralph to play the part of C.S. Lewis just before he became famous. <laughs> yes, that's how you do it. Perfect that's time. how you do it. By the way, anyone out here listening, you can get me right before I become famous <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. Day now, so hurry up. This is, you, this anyway, is your so one I opportunity. Bless. I bless the most reluctant convert. Um, right. Look out for that when it releases later this year. And I curse, I abominate. <laughs> Make anathema. I send into everlasting perdition. <laughs> this is good. The recent biopic about Tolkien. Ah, it's mm. a good choice. Lewis okay. Good, Tolkien Bad. I mean, the movies. <laughs> <laughs> No, we're just going to cut that out of context. (laughs) (laughs) The Tolkien biopic I thought was really disappointing in almost every respect. It just didn't even work as a film, let alone a film about this real person called Tolkien. They eviscerated his his faith. It just had, it it was unbelievable as a piece of Edwardian drama. It had no period feel to it. Mm. It was just awful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what makes it, I agree with you, what I thought made it even more disappointing was how much um, potential it, mm. it had. The story, yeah. even the studio and the actors and the, the budget had so much potential to be great and honor this, this writer who's affected so many people, this man. Um, and it just failed. Yeah, like you said, it just it fell yeah. flat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, really disappointing. And no, I, but the, the only good thing about its failure means that within another 10 or 20 years, yes. there'll be an opportunity to remake it and yeah. do it right. And there yeah. will probably be a role for a vicar. <laughs> and I know a guy who's pretty good at this role. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, all right, so uh, Nathan, do you want to go next? Yeah, I'm gonna go um, really simple. I'm going to just bless the, I, I won't even say my favorite because I think that's that's um, that's a dangerous thing to do, but I'll say the bless, the C.S. Lewis book that has had the greatest effect on me and it's just it hit at this right time when I had been sure, going through yeah. things and I'm just going to read a quick little paragraph from it and it's the opening paragraph which I actually as an actor turned once in in a um, acting class turned into a monologue 
Um, so Cis Plus fans, see if you can guess which, which book this is before yeah, you exactly. tell us. A week before I say it is. But the opening line, I think, is just so striking and beautiful. And again, it goes to the heart of what we were talking about earlier, about Lewis putting himself mm -hmm. into his work and why that is so um, beautifully connective. So the opening line is, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. Mm. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness the yawning, I keep on swallowing. And it continues from there. And, and now that's a funny um, passage to read and say, this is just an amazing book. But even right there, you can see he's speaking oh of his God. physicality, his weakness, yeah. his, his fear, his understanding, and he's longing to understand himself, um, the, the circumstances of life, what it means to be human. And it goes on, as the book is called uh, A Grief Observed, and it goes on to look at grief. Um, and, and the human condition. And it just really touched me at a time in my life when I needed to read a book like this. And again, it just goes to the heart of what we were saying about Lewis. And the book is called? A Grief Observed. Ah, yeah, yep, yep, yes. that sounds right. And um, for my curse, okay, I, I, gotta, I gotta find it here, one second. This is a fantasy writer I picked up hmm. last year on a whim, just because I wanted something, I had been reading a lot of theology or history and I wanted something that's kind of fun. And, and people have said, this is a fantastic fantasy um, series. And the book is called Every Heart a Doorway. And I'm cursing hmm. this book, not because it was terrible, it wasn't the worst book I've ever read, but, and this is, uh, in, because we're on oh. theme, oh. in the book, um, the author, it, it's again, it, it's it's a little derivative. It's in a school where everyone has, you know, it, it's a good concept. Every, it's basically everyone from uh, kids from who experience different worlds in one shape, uh, way, shape, or form or another go to the school to deal with and learn how to deal with, you know. So the Pevensies would have gone to the school after they sure, went yeah. to. Uh, so um, it's kind of like a, a support group school for people who've yes, gone to exactly. other fantasy for worlds. Who okay. found themselves in fantasies, yes, yeah, for kids. Yeah. And so, you know, it has some fun. A concept was good. I thought mm. it was interesting. But the writer decides to swipe at the shoulders that she is standing <laughs> upon <laughs> and to uh, make a big swipe at C.S. Lewis and talk about how trite Narnia is. <sighs> And how oh. it's just something like propaganda or something. I can't remember what it was, but I remember being so surprised. And I think whenever you insult something, make sure that you are far better than the thing you were insulting. <laughs> because at that very moment, I started not forgiving the lack of uh, poetry or uh, lyrical yeah. flow or description or story arc or character development. And suddenly I found myself at an antagonistic uh, relationship. relationship. But also it was, it's not, her writing doesn't even come close to the um, fictional and beautiful pentacycle writing of Lewis, not even close. So to swipe at him in this way, see, especially when you're writing in the fan the young adult fantasy genre, it seems like a poor move. Yeah. Um, so I was really surprised, but that would be my curse. And I'm sorry. That's but, a good one. Uh, I find this very interesting. I find that for the most part, people, have a tendency to call things propaganda that use imagination in ways they don't agree with. Like, you know, yes. I've had this, I've had this conversation with people who are huge fans of Star Trek and yet calls Narnia books propaganda. And I was just like, you do realize that Star Trek was explicitly made as a propagandic fantasy about, you know, the perfection of human achievement. And I like both. I like Star Trek and Narnia, but you love Star Trek and yet you think, you know, Narnia is propaganda. It's like, you know, no, it's just, it has an imagination that you don't agree with. And, that, and that's also, 
it's just better. It was, you read Narnia, it's just so much better. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, it, it's hard to um, realize you're not as good as something else. And it's easy to, yeah, uh, to make something. Yeah. Uh, something Don't make yourself great by it. trying to put someone else down. It doesn't work. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So um, that is unfortunately my curse. Um, that's a good blessing curse. Um, so I, I will try to, I'll try to keep mine quick because I have a tendency to go, to go, to go long on these. Um, <laughs> I'm going to bless first off, uh, that hideous strength and the ransom oh, trilogy yeah. overall. But my favorite of those is the, um, is that hideous strength because, you know, it's kind of funny. Cause when I was a child, I did Narnia. I wrote, read Narnia and I still read Narnia today and I love Narnia, but the, the space, excuse me, sci-fi trilogy. C.S. Lewis fans will know why I corrected myself when I said space trilogy. But <laughs> he, yeah, exactly. He does not like that word. Um, but <laughs> it, it's, it was, that was like, okay, now that you're an adult, like a teenager, you're allowed to read the Ransom trilogy. And, <laughs> and I, but that was the first time I'd seen, you know, C.S. Lewis do like adult social satire about the modern world and mix that with fantasy. And his ability to actually, and again, that's why one of the reasons I love, you know, um, the abolition of man and some of the things like that is his ability to critique the modern world in a really, in a very sharp and dark way and show how the, a dark and, and nihilistic world have that encounter C.S. Lewis's um, mm. poetry and imagination and theology was really dynamic and really yeah. um, powerful for me. And so I would say, like, again, if, if you have not read those books, so for some people, it's too weird, you know, but it's like, for me, it's exactly the right kind of weird. And it's definitely, if I ever get a chance to adapt a C.S. Lewis story to film, I would do uh, that because it's, it's oh, really yeah. quite incredible to me. Um, so that's what I'm going to bless and recommend to people if they haven't checked it out. Also, very briefly, because it ties into my curse, I will recommend if you want uh, to have a, a video, movie version or TV version of, of the Narnia books to watch the uh, BBC Narnia books, Correct. movies, Correct. because those... As, as cheesy as some of the acting is and and cheese and as TV movie as some of at 1980s TV movie as some of the special effects are it really does capture the magic and the poetry Agreed. and the philosophy of Agreed. CS Lewis in ways that haven't been done since particularly in the case of my curse which is am I going to curse the new Disney uh, <laughs> Narnia Whoa. books movies um, for, for and there's there's reason I could do that you know as whatever but for the most part it's because for the most part they try to take out the philosophy that CS Lewis had in there and kind of theology and replace it with their own. And they do that a little bit mm. in the first one um, where they kind of with Edmund try to explain his character through a broken family dynamic versus what C.S. Lewis was kind of talking about explicitly says, which is sort of a corruption of the school system that he was in. And so like mm. they kind of like, take out what C.S. Lewis and then in the Prince Caspian and the Voyage of Dog Treader, it's even more explicit where they take out the, the, the issues that he's grappling with and try to replace it with, you know, ideas like, oh, you know, we can't ask God to prove himself to us. We have to prove himself to him, which is like a line in there that wasn't in the books. It's like, well, that's not the stuff. That's not the issues that C.S. Lewis was actually wrestling with in his books. So the mm. fact that they, so that is kind of as an artist and as a, as a Christian, as like, ah, that's not what you do with a, with a, a storyteller. You don't try yeah. to replace the issues they were dealing with, with the issues you want to deal with. You just don't do that. So that's, so that's where I'm going to, I'm going to set that curse. Um, I thank you. I say thank you, Michael Ward, for 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 coming on. Um, it's really cool. I mean, just like the talk about 
the versatility of C.S. Lewis, his head and heart stuff, his honesty and humility, all these things are things that inspire me as an artist and a way to how to, and how to just be a good Christian that I think is really, really cool. So thank you for coming on, talk about this. If any, uh, any other, um, is there any place you would like to direct people to if they're interested in your work, if they're interested in uh, contacting you, if you've got anything that you want to plug, hint, hint, your book, that uh, <laughs> you might want to direct people to? Here's the time. What would you like to plug for us? If people want to find out more about me, my website is michaelward.net. Yeah. That's tricky. M-I-C-H-A-E-L-W-A-R-D, michaelward.net. Perfect. And if they want to buy my new book about the abolition of man, which is called After Humanity, they should go to the publisher's website in the first instance, wordonfire.org slash humanity. But you can find it on Amazon, but there's more information about it on the publisher's website, Mm. wordonfire.org slash humanity. Nice. It really is. I will say I've had, uh, while I've been here, it's funny during the, the lockdown, um, I read abolition man for the first time, for some reason I'd always overlooked it. Sure. And I never thought that this little book would be the most difficult of his work of mine. And, uh, somehow, I don't know how this, the timing worked out. I put the book down that very day. I opened Facebook and I see that Dr. Ward's book after humanity comes out. <laughs> just amazing. Cause now I need someone to explain it. Um, but the book is, is, uh, a guide through, uh, the abolition of man, but it's also so much more as history and yep. pictures it really is an amazing and beautiful book. Um, people around everywhere are already really reacting to this um, yeah. and responding to this book really well. So please pick up a copy if you're a Lewis fan. And you said michaelward.net. michaelward.net. If you want to uh, uh, have Michael speak at your college, please head over there, read some of his things, get his books. Uh, Planet Narnia is another really, really, I, I know this is not a, um, a highbrow British word. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah. It's a really cool book. And it's provocative so, too. It will make you, it will make you, it's got a thesis about the Narnia books that will make you think and challenge you and has, and has challenged scholars. So you could be involved in that discussion. So it's very definitely worthwhile reading. Absolutely. And if you want to get in touch with us, head over to the overthinkersjournal.com um, and uh, write us there. We love to hear your ideas for new episodes and all your thoughts on the old ones. Uh, and please join Join our Facebook group of a bunch of overthinkers. They have a private group on Facebook called The Overthinkers. We'd love to have you. Um, and it's so great to connect with other, other overthinkers. If you want to get in touch with me, go to nathanclarkson.me or search my name on any of the socials. Joseph? Well, you get in touch with me, josephholmesstudios.com, or you can find me on all the socials as well. As well. well, thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Dr. Michael Ward, for being here. And as always, if it's worth thinking about, it's worth overthinking about. 